all about gentle. I don't remember the last time somebody called me gentle. Zoo, am I gentle? Thank you. She says you're wrong. Oh. <laughs> Hi, guys. It is oh, so good to be with all of you. Uh, I know that God's going to do something tonight because Pastor Jason started preaching my sermon. So the Holy Spirit's doing something and wanting to say something. I almost went, well, dang, what am I going to do if he just keeps going and my entire message is gone? Uh, do I get up here and go, well, I had something, but I guess we can all just go now? No? I don't know if P. Joey would probably like that. Hey, how'd it go? Yeah, no, I just sent them home early. Pastor Jason preached my message, so, like, there was nowhere else to go. <laughs> nah, man, that's the confirmation. That's the Holy Spirit working right there. Uh, before I speak to you guys, I feel like you need to know who is talking to you. Because I feel like half the time when you get a guest speaker, you're like, who are they? Who do they think they are? And why are they telling me these things? Uh, so really quick, I grew up in a church. In fact, I was a pastor's kid, which meant I was in the church more than I was home. My parents like to say that I cleaned the bathrooms at the church more than I cleaned them at home, and that was probably true. Uh, but I grew up not here in Chicago, but here in Illinois, but in small town. How many of you have been to breakaway camp? Yeah. So think of those cornfields. Drive half an hour away from the campground. That is my hometown. It is still cornfields. <laughs> but that's where I grew up. And then I went to Minneapolis, Minnesota, to the city, to go to college. I majored in youth ministries. That's where I met my husband. I know. He got stuck with me, and then we moved back to Illinois, where I got a job as a youth pastor in Berwyn. Yeah, that's, that's an appropriate response. <laughs> uh, but I'm the youth pastor in Berwyn, and then a year and a half ago, we adopted our son, Josiah, who is the cutest, th he's the, that's him, hardcore cheesing. He does not do that in real life. He just gives side-eye all day. But in, in that photo, he decided uh, that he would be cute. Uh, and if you can see in the bottom of the photo, there is something hanging at his neck. He is a medically complex kid, uh, which means that he has a tracheostomy, so a tube that goes into his throat, and he has a ventilator breathing for him. Uh, so he is a very special little man that teaches me about God every single day. Uh, and I love him. But we're not going to sit and talk about him the entire time. If you want to see cute pictures of him and Josie together, though... I do have those after service. They're adorable. Uh, tonight, I'm not necessarily happy uh, about the circumstances that brought me here tonight uh, with people being sick, but I am excited to share what God has put on my heart for you. So uh, letting you know in advance, I am a very interactive speaker. I am used to my kids that I ask like a dozen questions to throughout. I tamed it down for you guys because you're not ready for that full level of commitment. We'll just do like shows of hands throughout the course of it. So prepare yourselves. Uh, but first question for you. I guess second because I asked if you went to breakaway. Is it all right? Do I have your permission to speak God's word and challenge you tonight? There we go. Then let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, first and foremost, we lift up those that are sick and in quarantine right now. We ask that you would touch their bodies. Even with the most mild symptoms, we ask that you would supernaturally reach down and heal them, that they would be symptom-free even at this very moment, that they would feel the prayers of your people as they sit at home. Lord God, we ask that you would be faithful in this moment and show yourself to be the great physician and healer of bodies. 
And God, for those of us here tonight, I ask that you would speak to our hearts. God, I lay this message, this time, my words at your feet. May your truth be heard and pierce our spirits so that we leave this place changed. We ask this all in your name. Amen. So first and foremost, how many of you have siblings? Mm-hmm. How many of you fight with your siblings? Amen. Mm-hmm. I am the oldest sibling. I have a little sister who is not little anymore. She is 22 years old, married, and lives in Georgia. I know. It happened very quickly. <laughs> I don't know where the time went. She was just three. But anyway, uh, me and her had fights all the time growing up. Because we are very different. Not just in looks. People never believed that we were sisters. Because I look like this. And my sister was a petite little blonde with blue eyes. So people are like, so, wait, cousins? Nah, we're sisters, unfortunately. <laughs> but not only that, we had very different personalities. Uh, I was very affectionate. I loved having her as a baby sister. I tried to climb in the hospital bassinet with her when she was born. Not a good idea. She, on the other hand, wanted to be left alone. <laughs> There is literally a photo of us. She was probably about a year. I was four, where I took the sash off a bathrobe and literally tied us together so she had to hug me. I look ecstatic. She looks miserable. <laughs> I would also shut us in a closet to, to play together. She did not like that either. So we started there, and then as we got older, our differences grew even more extreme, uh, including our opinions about my now husband. <laughs> the first time that I brought him home as my boyfriend to meet the family, uh, she dumped a full glass of water on his head. I'm not talking like she had it and it was a spur-of-the-moment decision. Homegirl went to the kitchen, grabbed a glass out of the cabinet, filled it with water, and came back to the living room and dumped it on his head. My parents were very upset because there was carpet. <laughs> also, if you are an older sister, you have probably heard at some point, you're not my mom. Or maybe if you're a younger sibling, you have said that. <laughs> point being, sibling relationships can be really hard. They can be difficult and complex, and they change all the time. Relationships in general can be really tricky. So when we talk about our relationship with God, sometimes our understanding of that can get a little messy. So tonight we're going to talk about our relationship with God and what that looks like from a very specific angle. Uh, and we're going to look at one particular account in the Bible, because of course we are. We are going to go to the book of John chapter 12. If you have a Bible app, you could pull it out, or I guess you could wait for it to come up on the screen if you guys do that. Uh, we're going to be looking at this and pulling out pieces of truth. The amazing thing about scripture is that because God is constant, the truth that was written thousands of years ago is still true today for us. We just sometimes have to look at it a little harder. So we're going to be reading John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And in it, John writes, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. 
Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So giving you guys a little background, these are people that we have heard of in the Gospels throughout the story of Jesus' ministry before. Mary and Martha is the story that we often reference when talking about spending time with Jesus because Mary sat at Jesus' feet listening to his teachings and Martha was working and tried to get Jesus to be on her side going, my sister's not helping. Do you want to tell her to maybe, you know, come do some dishes? And Jesus said, no, she's doing the right thing. It's this Mary and Martha. But also it pointed out at the very beginning, this is the Lazarus who got sick and died. And Jesus came and resurrected him from the dead four days later. These people have relationship with Jesus. They're important to him. So even in the context of him being six days away from his arrest and crucifixion, he stopped. He spent time with them. And that's because relationship makes room. I think all of us could probably acknowledge Jesus could do whatever he wanted and he didn't have to stop for a party. (laughs) He could have kept going. He could have been with his disciples, tried to squeeze in as much teaching as humanly possible in those last few days. And you have to know, he knew what was going to happen. So his mind had to be heavy thinking about all of that. He had to be struggling with his emotions on their journey to Jerusalem. He didn't have to stop. And yet, because he loved them, he did. And then we see their response in that the family prepared a dinner in Jesus' honor. Now, we're not talking like they went out and got, like, a Giordano's large and brought it back. We're talking full-blown party, feast, going crazy, because it had to be them, so the three of them in the home, and then Jesus and his disciples and whoever was traveling with them on the way to Jerusalem and whoever in town heard that Jesus was back and wanted to see him, And I'm sure the guest list got really long, really fast. And I'm sure it was incredibly inconvenient for them to put that on at the last minute. I can just imagine Martha, who we heard the story of earlier in the Gospels, who was complaining about the work, just running around like a chicken with her head cut off, trying to figure out how she was going to feed all of these people and look good doing it. Like, that's what I imagine. But they were willing to go that extra mile because they had a relationship See, for me and my sister, I think back on this and making room, and I see how it was important for us. Because growing up, it was really easy for me to just be like, no, she's my little sister. I know what she's thinking. I know what she's doing. And I didn't give her space or time to talk to me. So as we grew up, we grew apart. We ended up going to school in different states. We went really long stretches of time without ever speaking to each other. I think her and her boyfriend, now husband, had been dating a year before I ever met him. And it took us growing up and being adults and realizing we were losing each other for us to get on the phone and go, okay, I don't even know who you are anymore. And I need to make the time to get to know you. Because I care 
so I'm going to make the time. And now we talk all the time. Mostly she's asking, how's my nephew? But, you know, I'll take it. (laughs) How's my baby, is what she says. And I'll go, yeah, I'm good too. It's fine. But we're so much closer because we took the time. We made space for each other. And it's the same with God. We spend our lives making space for people in our lives. We make space for things in our lives. Because I know all y'all's phones records how much time you spend on apps. Mm-hmm. How much time do you spend on TikTok? Mm, that for you page. It's addictive. Sometimes you're like, I watched a few and it's three hours later. <laughs> but we make space for it because we care. It's the same thing for God. If we're making room for those things, we need to make room for God in our relationship. And what's crazy is he already made room for us. We can go back to the Old Testament, to the Ten Commandments, and what's one of them? Keep the Sabbath day and make it holy. He said, here's a day, here's one day a week, it's just gonna be you and me. I'm making the space, I'm making the time, just meet me there. It wasn't a rule that we had to follow to inconvenience us and have to wake up early on one day of our weekend. It was him saying, I'm making the time. I'm doing this for you. Just meet me. He created the space, and then he asked us to do the same because that's what a relationship does. And if you want to look at what that means, we can look at Jesus. (laughs) Because in Matthew 14, this is after Jesus had fed 4,000 people and taught for hours and hours and hours. He said, after sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. There are several times that the Gospels talk about this, that he woke up early in the morning to go pray by himself. He went off alone to pray. Even before he was arrested, he went alone in Gethsemane to pray. He made time. He made room for that relationship with God. And everyone does this differently. I feel like we look at things and when we say we make room, we make time, everybody's like, okay, so I have to find like this time in the morning before I go to school and I have to sit and read this much of my Bible and pray for this long and that's, nah. (laughs) God made each of us unique, so we connect to him in unique ways. I've had professors that pray and do their devotions while they're biking. I do have the ones that wake up at 4 a.m. to pray and they're crazy. I've had people that use their commute time to pray and worship. There are the people that use their time when they're alone in their room at night before they go to sleep instead of early in the morning. It's not so much how as are you making it when. Because I guarantee your time with God will look different than everybody else's, and that's okay. Mine looks different from my husband's. It looks different from my boss's. And you know what? God and I still spend time. I have made room for him. Another thing we see here is that relationship brings perspective. In those short verses, we see a stark contrast of points of view from different people. And the one that probably sticks out the most is Judas, where he says, that perfume's worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and money given to the poor. 
Sounds right. But thinking about it, you have to go, okay, was he really? uh, How does he feel about this? How does he know? Well, it's because this perfume was really well known. The perfume, the oil from this specific plant was incredibly rare and it was used as both perfume and in expensive spiced wines. It was a sign of wealth and status. It was used by kings. He knew what he was talking about. This was known. As soon as you smelled it, you knew. And it was kept in a specific box. It had to be put in an alabaster box to preserve it. He knew what he was saying. But then uh, we get John throwing some shade about his real motivations. (laughs) It's a good thing to have the accounts written by the disciples who were actually there. Where he was like, by the way, yeah, it sounds right. But if you knew Judas, you would know that wasn't what he was thinking. You would know that he was handling our money and he wasn't doing it well. He was skimming some off the top. Everything we made, we gave to him to handle and he didn't do it well go so far to call him a thief. So in this moment, we see Judas prioritizing money over his relationship with Jesus. He can't look past the monetary value of the thing in front of him to see how important Jesus is. And it wouldn't even be the last time that week that he did it because a few days later, he would sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. His perspective was that perfume was too valuable, that money was too much to be wasted on Jesus. But then we have Mary's perspective. This is a woman who has a relationship with Jesus and isn't just his friend. She has gotten to sit at his feet and listen to him speak. No rabbi allowed an unmarried woman to learn about scriptures, let alone sit at his feet and learn with his disciples. No man would have let her do that, but Jesus did. Every time he was with her, he's like, let me tell you about God. Let me tell you about the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you about scripture. He valued her. And then on top of that, she had seen Jesus raise her brother from the dead. I think she probably had the perspective of, you know what? He's done so much, and I love him so much. It is worth this. He deserves this. Everything I can give him, and then I'm going to get down on hands and knees in front of him again, and I'm going to clean his feet with my hair. He is worth that. And then in the midst of this dissidence, we see Jesus trying to bring Judas back, trying to correct his perspective. And that's what Jesus does with all of us. He said, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, do you think that Jesus didn't care about the poor or giving money to them? Sometimes it kind of sounds like it. Until we remember that he spent a large amount of his ministry talking about sell your things, give to the poor. Whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. He cared. So what is he talking about? He's talking about something that was known in their scriptures already, that there is a time and place for everything. 
Ecclesiastes 3.1, written by Solomon, said, For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. Jesus was running out of time on earth. This was the last opportunity Mary had to do something like this. They would always have the opportunity to help people. In fact, if we look at the book of Acts, they spent the rest of their lives looking out for the unfortunate and the disenfranchised and the poor. Most of them sold everything they had to do that. They spent the rest of their lives. But it was that moment that Mary saw she didn't have much time. It's kind of like as we're coming down to the end of summer, where sometimes adults are like, why are you outside all the time? Why aren't you like reading a book or being productive? And you go, well, I've only got so much of this weather left, and I can be inside reading or cleaning any time of the year. You can go, books are always there. The swimming pool is not going to be 80 degrees forever. I heard people get very excited about a pool temperature. There's a window. There's a time. And Jesus provided that perspective. And for us, we often have to have that happen. Our perspective doesn't always line up. And that's where relationship comes in. The more time we spend with God, the more we gain his perspective. We're not going to understand all of it, not until we get to heaven. Uh, And as a control freak, can I say that I'm looking forward to that day so I can have all my questions answered? (laughs) Okay, but why, when I was 12, did this? It's going to be a long one. He's going to be very patient with me. But we can know in our heads that God knows all, is everywhere, and is all-powerful, but then we forget it when we feel like he's not there in the moment. We don't adopt his perspective because things get too real. Been there. And I have to remind myself. The closer our relationship with God is, the better we see things from his perfect perspective. The last thing that we get from this story is that relationship takes heart. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and the disciples who were there were devoted to Jesus. They loved him. They had relationship. They had experiences together. They gave him everything. And they did it in different ways. Because Martha served, Lazarus sat with him, and Mary gave the most expensive thing that she had. All of them loved him differently, but they gave everything. So when I'm talking about heart, I'm not just talking about the feelings, though we do love him. It's that committing your whole self. It's like when they talk about athletes who go hard on the field, and they're like, they have heart. Their heart's in it. Or if they do badly, their heart wasn't in it. It's more than just their feelings. Their head wasn't in it. They weren't committed. That's what we're talking about. And we see Mary, Martha, and disciples having their heart in the relationship. And for whatever reason, Judas's wasn't. Now, we can't know what was going on in his head, but maybe it was because Jesus wasn't acting the way he expected a Messiah to act. Or maybe he felt guilty for the stealing that he was doing, and it pushed him away. He didn't want to reveal that part of himself to Jesus, so it put a wall up. For whatever reason, he wasn't committing his all to Jesus anymore. 
and it was obvious in the way that he related to him. And I think it's easy, especially for those of us that grew up in church, to start thinking about faith in the terms of what we're doing, what we're not doing, if we're doing the right thing, what that looks like. And we forget that it's first and foremost about relationship. Can, you be, can I be honest with you guys? I spent over a decade of my life in that place. I grew up and from a very early age got stopped by every adult in the church saying, you shouldn't do that. You should know better. You're a pastor's kid. Expected to know every single memory verse and know the answer to every single Bible question. Do this. Don't do that. You're a pastor's kid. You should be good. And it took a toll on me. So when I got a call to ministry at 14, I was terrified. I cried because I thought it meant that I had to take on more rules. I had to act even better, and I couldn't even do what I was expected to do at that moment. I was terrified, and I carried it with me through college, through my internship, trying to be perfect. I treated God more like an employer than I did a father. Did I do good enough? Did I earn my pay? Did I earn my calling? And it took one verse, and it was like it jumped off the page and into my heart. And it's in Hosea 6, 6, where Jesus is talking to Israel when they have messed up their relationship, talking about where they went wrong. And he said, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. From the very beginning, God never wanted the right thing. He wanted relationship. We were created for relationship. He created Adam and Eve and walked with them in the garden. And then when that didn't work, he chose a people to be his own, to have a relationship with. He called them out. And there's something that the Jewish people have, and it is called the Shema. And it is their dedication, their prayer, their reminder of who God is. And there are two verses that follow it in Deuteronomy. It is Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. It says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. And the purpose of that was not to make them exclusive. They were not called away just to be themselves. They were supposed to be the example. That city on a hill that made people see that their God was different. So that they would want a relationship with him. The Israelites were supposed to be the first evangelists. And they didn't always do it well. And then when they couldn't hold up their end of the relationship, God did what most of us would think unthinkable. When we couldn't make it work, he sent his son to close the gap by dying for our sins. Removing that last obstacle between us. And he was willing to do that because God wants your heart. 
There's a pastor and author named Gary Thomas. And he wrote in one of his books, Christianity is about intimacy with the Father, and obedience flows from passionate love. We do things because of love. Just like Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples, the Israelites, God just wants a personal relationship with you. When we give God our whole heart and we make room, we gain his perspective, and that's where action comes from. I feel like half the time God's sitting there, forget about everything else for a second and just look at me. Make room for me, make time for me. Let me show you what I see in your life. Give me your heart and I promise I won't break it. He wants our hearts not just so that he feels good about himself, because he doesn't need us for that. It's because he loves us and it's only when we are willing to surrender everything that he can do what he wants which is always going to be better than our own plan. Take it from someone who learned the hard way. So we have an opportunity tonight. A lot of you guys are headed back into a new school year, some sooner than others. And Pastor Jason, if you'd be willing to come up. Some of you might be coming off that camp experience Can I encourage you in these moments, while you have that time, while you're still in your church bubble before going back to school, don't let anyone discourage or dampen your enthusiasm about God. It is always worth it. In fact, I challenge you to double down on it and choose to pursue him for an even deeper and closer personal relationship. He's waiting We just have to accept the invitation. And here's one last thing, that maybe you need words to move forward. You're like, I don't know what it looks like to pursue just a relationship and not write acts. How to be a good person. Maybe it's time to start asking, does this bring me closer to God instead of does this follow rules? Because if you're following God, I promise you won't have to worry about that. If you're close to him, you will not have to worry about it. I'd like everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. For some of you in the room, maybe you came tonight, and it was fun. You got to play games. There was cool music. The speaker was halfway funny. But you're realizing as you're sitting here, you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. This guy that made time for people even as he was about to endure the worst torture of his life. And you want that. If that's you and you want to start that relationship and accept that invitation tonight, I just want to give you an opportunity to raise your hand right now. Awesome. Great.
Now, maybe you're here tonight and your story looks a little bit like mine. You've been in church and you had a relationship with Jesus, but somewhere along the way, you've gotten distracted by trying to be a good person and you've forgotten about the relationship. And you want to say, Allie, right now, I want to come back. I want to feel that. I want to make time for him again. I'm feeling lost and I need his perspective. I want to make sure that he has my heart. If that's you, can you raise your hand right now with nobody looking around? Awesome. Praise God. Yeah. Amen. Anyone else? Can we all stand together? Can I just remind you all that God loves you? And he was just waiting. For those of you who raised your hand, he was waiting. And the Bible tells us there's a celebration in heaven every time someone comes to the Lord. Whether it's the first time or it's the 20th time. When you come back, there's a celebration.